couple years ago, I was sitting down, uh, taking a break from my job at The Athletic Media Company, and uh, I was drinking a non-alcoholic beer from Athletic Brewing, and I thought, uh, hey, this this could be a partnership because I'm, I'm an ad wizard, and so I put those two things together, and took a couple years, but now I get to read ads for Athletic Brewing and uh, their non-alcoholic beers, and I'm excited about it. And I'm excited about it because I like the product. I like the product for a variety of different reasons. There are times where I'm uh, the designated driver, and that is, it's perfect for me. I don't feel like I'm, I'm missing out on a whole lot. There are also times where I'm not the designated driver, but it's going to be a long day of gabbing, and I don't necessarily need to have 10 IPAs in a row. So I will mix in an athletic, non-alcoholic beer, and I, I feel like I don't miss a beat, and it allows me to pace myself uh, the way I want to do it. It's perfect for beach days, music festivals, and baseball games, camping, late nights. Uh, they have a ton of different varieties. They have uh, light. They have upside uh, Don Golden. They have Run Wild IPA. They have a hazy IPA. They have summer seasonals. They've got a, a lemon Rattler ripe pursuit. I don't even know what a Rattler is, but now I want to try it. I feel bad that I haven't tried it. So this summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer you need to know, Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you and use the code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off. It's near beer, non-alcoholic beer, and it tastes Listen, I grew up with some funky ones. Uh, those didn't taste like beer. This tastes like this. This is good non-alcoholic beer. Uh, exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Just in time for this edition of the VanCast, big announcement by the Vancouver Canucks. Actually, let's backtrack on that. It's not a big announcement yet, but it is being reported by Elliot Friedman that the Canucks have extended Kuzmenko. One of the bright stories for the Vancouver Canucks of this season, Andre Kuzmenko gets signed. It's a two-year deal at $5.5 million a year, and every goal this guy scored, including a couple against Chicago, in Rick Tockett's debut, we just kept thinking the price was going up and up 
and up. And we were thinking it was going to be a longer term deal. We were thinking the number was going to start with six. First of all, what do you make of the signing harm? And what do you make of the number? Yeah, I think right off the bat, if you just look at the contract in a vacuum, for it to come under six and only have two years of uh, of term that you're sort of throwing uh, throwing in terms of risk there, absolutely, I think it's a it's a team friendly contract. It's a win for the Canucks, but you also just kind of wonder what it means in in the bigger picture of the team's direction and the opportunity cost of what you could have potentially flipped them for. Um, from the, it's interesting for me also from Kuzmenko's camp's perspective. To me, I think this is a case of a player wanting to bet on himself where I think they see the immediate success that he found and he probably wasn't going to hypothetically, if he hit the free agent market, get a huge bag uh, just because of the limited track record. But I think this is a bet to where... He believes that if he can sustain, you know, maybe not necessarily at this 70 plus point pace, but if he if he can be a consistent high end top six forward for the next couple of years, that in two years time, the cap will hopefully have gone up and he'll be in a position at 29 years old to really cash in with a with another big UFA contract. I think that's always a consideration for agents is not only what can you get on this contract, but how are you setting yourself up? for the next one and i and i think by keeping the term just to two years um and sort of giving in to a pretty team-friendly aav that's a bet that i sort of see is is kuzmenko being confident that um he can repeat this and that in two years time he can be a a very very rich man yeah i'm not sure i see it that way to be truthful and, and everything you're outlining makes sense but you've got the team over a barrel right now you have got a desperate team looking for some sort of feel good story. Your, your market value is high, right? Relative like your production this season is, is elite. Like, can you sustain that? I get you're betting on yourself, but I think this is a bit of a gamble because I think they could have got five or six years out of the Canucks. I, I absolutely think they could have got that. I think they got to get, got, could have got more than uh, 6 million AAV. I mean, those were the numbers that were being talked about. Is there a case to be made that, yeah, you want to cash in now, if you view 5.5 as cashing in relative to what you could get, but you also don't want to be stuck in this situation, right? I mean, it works for the Canucks because they're not married to this long term. And that keeps his asset value high because when you get into the final year, now all of a sudden he can be presented as a rental and it's not necessarily onerous for a team to want to pick that up. But at the same time, you don't want to be married to this organization. If this continues to spiral in the wrong direction, like I almost view this as he's betting on himself. But he also wants to get a get out of jail free card. Maybe, but honestly, when usually when a player comes over and they're in this type of environment, it, it is a, a lot of like you got to remember this is his first year in North America. He's just sort of feeling everything out, getting to understand what the city is about, understand what this organization is about. So I'm not even you know maybe it is a bit of a get out of jail free card, but it's also just in general before you really make a huge decision that I want to that I want to stay here in any particular city and on in any particular team for a really long time it makes sense to feel fully acclimated fully comfortable understand your options know what your value is and uh and in the meantime if you're getting paid a, a pretty um like five and a half million dollars per year for a player that, that came over for Russia that's still nice uh nice money um, it's a way to kind of just kick the can down the road on the on the decision. So, you know, maybe there's an element of that too, for sure. 
But this is the contract. This is the age window, right? Because ultimately he is a UFA at the end of all of this, right? Like the club doesn't have control here. So this is the contract where you want to hit in terms of term. I understand that the salary caps expected to go up in two years, not necessarily by a significant number this year, but boy, it just feels to me like it is a risk. And, and I get the concept of betting on yourself, but you know how most of these agents operate. They, they generally want to give their client a level of protection. So if you could get, a five times six or a six times six. And that gets you into your, your, your mid thirties. Like generally this is the age window where they want to hit a contract with term. Is it not? Sure. But look at how Kuzmenko must feel with himself. He's uh, he's already scored 20 goals. The point production, I'm, I'm not saying it's right or wrong because I, I mean, who knows what he's eventually going to end up being in the long run in terms of his NHL career. But if you're the player, you're probably thinking, Maybe I don't sustain this high of a pace every year, but yeah, I can produce in this league. Yeah, I can be a high-end top six driver. Yeah, I can not only survive, but thrive on a first unit power play. And if anything, a player might be in that sort of environment thinking, I'm only going to become more comfortable with this league, um, use the facilities and and sort of resources at my uh, at my advantage to even little details like improving my conditioning, understanding NHL systems even better, becoming more comfortable with the language, like all of these factors. The first year is always the hardest. It's such a massive transition. And I'm not saying Kuzmenko is going to get better than this necessarily, but from his perspective, you can certainly convince yourself that. For me, I, like as, as a Canuck, you know, as a, if you're a Canuck fan and you're worried about this team doubling down on the current core and what they're doing and signing them to a long-term deal. I've certainly tried to wrap my head around the notion that they were willing to give this player six times five, but they weren't willing to give Bo Horvat eight. And again, I don't think they should have signed Bo Horvat, like given the circumstances and how they've doubled down on an underperforming core. I don't think you want to continue to go down that road. However, from a Canuck perspective, seeing this as a two-year situation, I don't think that's so bad. I think this is, this is the rare win-win in the National Hockey League because we certainly don't view the JT Miller deal as a win-win, but this could be an absolute win-win. Yes, I know that if he bets on himself and hits, it's going to hurt this team in two years, but they're also not saddling themselves with a really challenging contract that this core is tied to. Yeah, it's true in the sense that you're definitely not going to be stuck with a bad contract, but I still feel that the, the overarching question I have is what are you going to win in the next two years, right? I, I still don't see how you're able to best capitalize on the short-term value because that's always the appeal of a bridge contract when you sign a guy for two or three years is that to really maximize its value, to, to, to take advantage of it, you've got to win during those two or three years where you've got that player at a um, at a team-friendly rate. It's just like the bridge Pedersen signed at 7.3, whatever it was, right? For it to, uh, for, for that contract to make sense, you've got to win something meaningful. Otherwise, you're going to be saddled with, with a big tab at the end of the, um, at, on the other side of, uh, of that deal. Now, in this case, also with Kuzmenko, it's just, he's 27 years old. I don't see him being a part of this next, next, Canucks team that contends for a Stanley Cup. I just think this project is going to take too long. Uh, a rebuilding team in this situation would look at a 27-year-old UFA while his value is at an all-time high and would sell. And we're also looking at a scenario where I just saw Rick Dollywell reporting that he's got a 12-team no-trade list. 
which um, which agents are pretty smart these days. You can maneuver, you can do your research if if the Canucks ever down the line are looking at sort of changing course, you can look at, okay, what teams have cap space, what teams could be interested in, in a piece like Kuzmenko. And if you're Dan Milstein, you can craft that no trade list very strategically to where that could significantly handcuff you. So right off the bat, it, it sort of, he doesn't have a lot of trade value anymore. Um, I guess, obviously there, it's good in the sense that he's got great chemistry with Pedersen. Maybe it makes Pedersen happier, but in the big picture, even though this is a good contract, I don't see where it fits in the bigger picture, uh, in the bigger picture direction of this franchise. And you mentioned the keyword Pedersen. So, a how much of the length of this deal is motivated by where Pedersen is at right now? It doesn't match exactly, but it's only a year off, right? I mean, Pedersen's got one more year on his deal. Kuzmenko now has two years on a deal. So, how much of this is Pedersen's camp saying? We don't want to be here that long if he's not here that long. And at the same time, from the club perspective, how much of this is a statement to Pedersen that you've got your guy for a little bit here? It might be in part. I don't think from I don't think from Pedersen's perspective or anything, it's like a demand that, oh, we need Kuzmenko back or anything. Obviously, it's great when you have a line mate that you're having success with, that you have clear chemistry with, that you want him, uh, that you generally want him um, back. But also in the in the big uh, in the big picture, you've got, you've got to be careful not to sort of um, tie yourself into making decisions just to appease certain players. Now, in this case, with uh, with Patterson, we'll have a we'll have a great idea this summer, obviously, of where his he- head's at, how he views a potential extension in uh, in Vancouver. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know for for certain, but clearly there's an on ice chemistry there. There's a level of the way that they think the game with each other that I don't see that with uh, with a lot of other wingers that uh, that Pedersen plays with, especially because Besser's been struggling a lot and he looks like a shadow of the player that uh, that he's usually been. So, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it can't hurt uh, Pedersen's view on on the situation here in Vancouver. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, like I, I can't help but think somehow the, the timing on all of this is connected between these two players. But uh uh, either way, big news day for the Vancouver Canucks because we we do know that these were the two big priorities, both the the Bo Horvat situation and the Andre Kuzmenko situation. Uh, how are those going to play out? So we've got the answer on one. Kuzmenko is going to be here for two more years at five point five million. We'll see what happens after that, but at least there is a little bit of certainty. I tend to think the way you do on this one, right? I mean, I think they had a chance to monetize the asset, and I think that would be ideal. However, right now. You haven't put yourself in a position with this player going forward. Yes, he's got the 12-team no-trade list, but he becomes a lot harder to move if all of a sudden he was in a contract that was going to pay him $6 million a year for five years and he underperforms and they want to move on. I think that becomes a little bit more difficult at that point. So um, a win-win on some levels, additional uncertainty on other levels. So, uh, But either way, we've got one question answered, and now the other one is Bo Horvat. We'll get into that when we return. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let's talk Bo Horvat now, Harm. And there are reports out there that the Canucks are continuing to keep the door open on the possibility of extending Bo. And they now think they've got a fair offer on the table, which sounds different than what we were told by Jim Rutherford earlier, where he said we had a fair offer on the table to him prior to the season based on what his results were before this season. But obviously now he's earned more. We did think there was a level of posturing there and that there was going to be one additional attempt to get the player signed. But are you handicapping this any different? Because when I see them trying to talk to him, it's like rinse, repeat on JT Miller. You're not getting what you wanted. You wanted a high, th- high amount on JT in terms of asset value. You didn't get it. You know, and there were other factors around getting that re-signed. And now are they finding themselves in the same situation with Bo Horvat? Because in the last week, we think there's five or six teams that are legitimately interested in paying a, a reasonable price for the player. The problem with for from the Canucks' perspective is that now that they've re-signed Kuzmenko, how can you afford like, yeah, you can afford Bo technically you can find a way to squeeze it in but how are you going to be able to do anything after that you're going to be capped out as soon as you sign so so then it's like what are we doing how are you going to rebuild the defense how are you going to uh, fix a lot of a lot of the other issues on this team you're literally just running it back you have no flexibility to do anything else and there and it's not as if this um this organization, this this roster is full with a lot of liquid uh, liquid money that you can uh, move around. Most of the big ticket players that the Canucks have right now are on contracts that other teams do not want. So, I mean, could they s- still give it one more go? I mean, it, it's not surprising, right? Especially because if you're thinking about a retool from the from management's perspective, replacing top six centers, high end ones especially really really challenging it's like trying to find top pair defensemen acquiring them affordably is is damn near impossible so you can understand why they're giving it another kick at the can considering that they want to turn this around sooner rather than later but i don't think i don't see a scenario where it where it makes sense for this organization and logistically i think it's going to still be too challenging just because what are you going to do after you've got no flexibility to do to do um, much of anything else well, and that's the challenge because they seem to tell us that they still want to be able to move money. I mean, they just haven't showed an ability to do that, right? I mean, can you get rid of Brock Besser at this stage? Can you get rid of Connor Garland at this stage? Um, you know, we know how challenging the Oliver Ekman Larson contract is. We know how challenging uh, the Myers contract is. Not nearly as bad given the term, but like this just marries itself to buyouts, which is going to further deepen this problem. If they like, if they wind up getting. Bo, they're going to put themselves in a position where they've got no choice but to buy out and then wear the pain from the associated buyout costs and how much longer it gets tied to your cap. Like it's amazing what they're going to put them the situation they're going to put themselves in. You just can't win in this league without managing the cap exceptionally well and having a ton of hyper efficient contracts. In in the modern NHL, roster construction isn't just about acquiring good players, assembling good players. It's about 
the efficiency. You look at a team like um, like Colorado. I, I brought up the example before where they won the Stanley Cup. McKinnon was making under seven million. Nachushkin was on an absolute sweetheart of a deal. Uh, making peanuts. Byram was on his ELC. Like those are the types of contracts that you need to win. Devon Taves was making around four million flat. Um, a ton of sweetheart deals. Um, you look at uh, even Boston this year w- with how dominant they're looking. They don't have a single forward who's making more than six point six. Right, like you go up and down that list. It's like Pasternak's at six point six, one of the best goal scorers in the league. Marshans barely a tick over six. Um, Patrice Bergeron, who's still a franchise number one center, is at two and a half million. Krejci signed for one million as their second line center. They've got a lot of these hometown discounts right now. That's how a team like Boston's able to stay so deep and actually contend. And then you contrast that with where the Canucks are at. And um, and not only do they have a lot of inefficient deals, but it's not even just about bad contracts. You're in a in a world where you can only afford to pay so many guys market value before you run out of space to actually have good players. So even when it pertains to a guy like Bo or Kuzmenko, it's not even about is this a bad contract. It's often just about how many guys can we pay market value because at a certain point, you need a lot of sweetheart deals. And right now, when I look at this Canucks team, the only really great contract that I see is probably Thatcher Demko at around $5 billion flat when he's when he's at his best. Uh, Quinn Hughes at under $8 million maybe. After that, you're, you quickly... you like you, And obviously, Pedersen, but he's, he's going to be expiring soon. So... You just don't have good contracts on this team. And that's an obstacle that is almost impossible to overcome. Yeah, I like there's, there's no doubt. I mean, they're, if they feel tied cap wise now, they're going to be incredibly tied, uh, you know, to a point here with the Kuzmenko signing. But if they actually wind up getting Bo done, wow, that would be just that'd be something else. And just if you're a Canuck fan and you look at this from the standpoint of just continuing to double down versus a shortcut path to, path to the playoffs. It's going to be hard to... We we talk about untangling a contractual mess. Like, I just don't know how you can believe in this group. I don't know how, as an organization, you can see what's here, double down on the core after saying there were going to have to be some hard decisions. There's no other hard decisions to be made. You know, because moving on from Brock Besser, no one's going to be upset about that. Like, that's not a hard decision. When the fan base was being warned that there are hard decisions coming, if you keep Bo Horvat, there's no hard decisions left. So, and again, I just mean that from a fan perspective, but how you could possibly double down on this core blows me away because you would be completely married to it. There would be no moving from that point. Yeah. And and there's no room to add. You know, to, to your point, there's just no room to add. So looking at it, it just baffles me as to how they can look at this and say, yep, we like it. Rick talk it. He can fix it all. Yeah. And, and we saw, and I'm sure this is a great transition to, to the Seattle game and, and the first couple of games we've seen from uh, from this team. But he, we saw it against uh, against the Kraken. It's, it's crazy how an expansion team who's just in their second season has already lapped the Canucks. And not by a small margin either. It was... I was blown away at how much faster the Kraken looked, at how much more decisive they were, how they connected plays. Like Farhan, I mean, back in the day, expansion teams were terrible. And when you looked at this expansion team after the expansion draft, you would have thought this was terrible. 
Like nobody saw this from Jared McCann. Nobody saw this from the top six forward group. We looked at them and said, that's a pretty good defensive core they've assembled. The forwards, really? And the goaltending was awful. And then last year, the season lived up to all of that. So how they could have the level of foresight to get to this point, because the roster didn't see sizable upgrades this offseason, it's amazing to me to see what they've been able to do. And if you're a Canuck fan and you're looking for an alternative, we might have to start the Kraken cast because oh yeah, my God. you know people, <laughs> people are going to start hedging that way any moment now. But wow, just watching them last night. And look, their talent level is not through the roof. You, you use the word connectedness. That's what I see when I watch that team play. I see a team that clearly understands how to play together, how their coach wants them to play, and how they as a roster are best equipped to play. And the fact that they've got some guys in the back end that can transition the puck makes everybody around them faster. Like this is, if you look at them on paper, they're not an incredibly fast team player for player, but they're able to play fast hockey because they can transition the puck. They are pretty quick on their feet, but yes, you're right that it's amplified because of how, how much support they have when they're breaking the puck out. What a crazy two games of Detroit, isn't it? We saw oh arguably the best game of the season against Chicago, allowing just 14 shots. One of the best defensive performances from this club. Uh, I can't even remember last time they defended this well and then followed it up with the worst game of the season. We had a Bruce There It Is chant from Seattle fans. After uh, after game two, we have Rick talking going, I don't even know what to say after that performance. Like, wow, welcome to the Vancouver experience, Rick Tockett. Yeah, like that was that was the biggest thing. He was absolutely speechless. We all want to talk about the word soft, but if you listen to his availability, he struggled for words. He kind of thought, oh, maybe last year or not last year, but some old habits have come back. Well, of course, like it's been two games in one practice. What are you talking about? Right. They are who they are. Like you, it's going to take you a while to fix them, but this is who they are. And it's this level of inconsistency because they look great against Chicago. And we understand they were playing a bad team. We get it. However, They've played poorly against poor teams, even if they found ways to win. When you look at that team's commitment to just a, a little bit more in the way of details, a little bit more in the way of puck management, you know, their gap was good. They were five back. They didn't blow the zone early. They did so many detail-driven things right. And yes, it was an average team that didn't stress them. And then all of a sudden, a day later, holy cow, watching this team a second time. And again, like I get the Kraken are good, but Come on, man. Like, not 6-1 good. They shouldn't be drumming the Canucks like this. And you can only maybe look at the last goal and say that was kind of a weak goal. Everything else was pretty reasonable, I thought, from, from Spencer Martin's standpoint. But what we saw in Vancouver's own end was the worst of what we've seen all season. This is who they are. Cross-seam passes, no problem, right? Like, they the number of goals the Kraken scored last night that truly looked like they were on the power play was mind-boggling. It wasn't just transition where the Canucks have given up odd man rush after odd man rush. Just in their own end at five on five, they were a disaster. Yeah, and it's a really tough task for Talkit too because, for example, when Bruce Boudreaux came in and we saw it was more of an instantaneous fix, the difference was that for Boudreaux coming in, the Canucks had just been playing a more defensive style under, under Travis Green. So Boudreaux comes in and his adjustments are more just, all right, guys, let's open things up. Let's play a more aggressive style. 
Let's uh, let's play with more tempo. I want you guys chasing the puck. Let's be aggressive. Let's try and force turnovers. That's an easy. Those are e- easier adjustments to implement, to to install onto the roster. Whereas with Talkit, it's the opposite. You're kind of taking this group that chases the puck too much and is hyper aggressive, and you're trying to tighten them up and get them to play with more structure. He's had one practice to work with this group. So, and even in that one practice, you could tell that Talkit felt um felt that it was more practice for him to build relationships. That was my biggest takeaway from that first practice. Because I, I I tried to watch very carefully and see how like how much is instruction is there, who's talking to who, that sort of thing. And talk it was more just trying to absorb the atmosphere and get to have individual chats with players like Pedersen, uh Garland, I saw Joshua, you saw the assistants like Gonchar and Foot trying to talk to so many of the defenders. Gonchar spent a long time chatting in the middle of practice with Quinn Hughes one-on-one. It was a lot more about relationship building. And I think that's a big part of how they view um, the staff does trying to start the process of getting them to buy into the changes they want to make is first, we've, we've got to get these guys as trust. I, I think talk it realizes that he can't just come in there, start barking and yelling orders and, and, and having hour long sessions of video and um, on the whiteboard. It was very little instruction. There was barely any systems work. And so far in the two games that I've seen, they haven't really tried to change too much of how they've tried to play. They're still chasing. They're still aggressive. Um, so this is going to take a really long time. It's going to take a while to untangle uh, this uh, this cobweb, as opposed to again when Boudreaux came in, it was more just like let's open things up. That's easy. You don't really have to make any um, uh, make any drastic changes in terms of X's and O's, and it's easy to get. It's fun for players. It's easy to to get them to buy into that, as opposed to playing with more details and, and not blowing the zone and and all those sorts of aspects. So that's important. Now, the other thing I will say in terms of the contrast, because I noticed this first in the Chicago game, and I had sort of written this down in my notes. Um, for why they defended so well in uh, in that game, it seemed like they were defending so well because they neutralized Chicago's uh, breakout game completely. It was as if all their all the good work they did defending was first done in the offensive zone, coupled with the fact that when the Canucks were in the defensive zone, even when their passing and execution was a little bit off, like you'd have a defender making an outlet pass and it sort of bounces off a player's skate and it's loose for a second or two. It seemed like the Blackhawks weren't fast enough to close on that and force those sort of half broken plays into turnovers, into changes of possession. And the Canucks were able to recover and still transition up. So it was that difference where the Canucks had a had a bit greater margin for error in their own end with the puck. And conversely, they were all over the Hawks in the offensive zone with the forecheck that allowed them to kind of dominate um, zone possession. The problem that I sort of thought was, man, like if there's a back end or a team that can just zip, 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 pass it around, have good support, speed through the middle, that's when the aggressive chasing Vancouver does comes back to bite. Because if you don't win the puck, now you're um, now you're stretched out far, you're out of position, and the opposition has uh, has has time and space. Has there been a two game sample size? where it's run that hot and cold? That's a really good question. I don't think to this degree. I don't think to to this level of uh, of extremes, because again, I think Chicago is arguably their best performance of the season, and I think Seattle is arguably their worst performance of the season. Yeah, you know, that that 
came to me exactly in the same light. Just that Chicago game. Yes, it was Chicago. The shots were one-sided, but everything was one-sided. The level of process in that game was encouraging, right? Like it, it would have been easy for just a moment to stop putting the context of, well, they're playing Chicago in there because there was process that was, that was so good. And, you know, everyone's beaten Chicago, but not everyone's necessarily dominated them that way. Um, and looking at this as bad as the Canucks have played, and there's been so many games where they've blown leads and uh, things have just happened on the power player, sorry, on the penalty kill. But when you look at this particular game, from minute one, right through. I mean, we've seen the Canucks give up two goals and then all of a sudden come back and figure it out. We, you know, we've seen that ebb and flow in a game regularly in games that they've lost. There was nothing this team had to offer from start to finish at all. Like even the goal that Connor Garland got credit for, did it even touch him? There was nothing redeeming about this game. Yeah. The other thing that sort of came to my mind as I sort of think about, okay, what practical impact could talk it actually have in trying to improve the defensive results i think we saw that a massive part of their defensive issues are that they can't make poised plays under pressure ironically a lot of their defensive issues are their inability to execute with the puck not without it and what i mean by that is there was a stretch um or around the with about five minutes into the first uh into the first period where the Kraken just started dominating and I sort of manually had, had sort of tracked a lot of these plays because I was curious and, and just, and there was a stretch of, I've noted down here, 12 breakout attempts that the Canucks had where only one of them, they actually made it past center ice. And we're talking about, and, and the wow. problem is it's not just the defenseman, right? Like I'll, I'll go through these, I'll, I'll go through some of the, the players involved here. It's both the four, it's, it's the centers, it's the wingers, it's the defensemen. Like I've got, it starts with, uh, you know, there's a McKayev turnover in the neutral zone, McKayev again on the half, on the defensive half wall, unable to get it out. Um, Joshua makes a, makes a pass to Horvat, but it bounces off his stick in the crack and regain possession. Um, there's uh there's a stretch pass from Miller that he tries to get send it to dries and it's way off and the crack and get to regroup. There's a, a Burroughs bank pass turnover. There's a uh, Hughes going glassing out and then Besser's unable to win the loose puck. Um, and then Horvat eventually after like the eighth one gets, a, gets a puck down low, tr tries to send the soft pass to Joshua, but it's way off. And and that's where Seattle opens, uh, opens a scoring from uh, Bjorkstrand. And then moments after it's Myers, it's Miller, it's Shen, and then it's Kuzmenko eventually at the defense's own half wall, turning it over, which results in the penalty that Wenberg then scores on to make it 2-0. Think about the players I mentioned there. And, and that's to me the the biggest issue that I sort of see is like, how as a coaching staff can you fix that? Right. And I'm not just talking about egregious turnovers, right? Because those always stand out. And there were certainly some of those in the first period. A lot of these were more subtle than that. A lot of these were guys trying to make an outlet pass like a Tyler Myers. And it just bounces off the off his teammate skate and the Kraken regain possession at their defensive blue line. Right. It doesn't right off the bat. You're not thinking, Ooh, that's a terrible play, but it's just the drip, drip, drip of happening again and again and again, or, or having to go high flip every time. That was a big that was a big part of it where they had to flip it out. And again, the Kraken, it just felt like they were able to regroup and then dump it back in. And just like I mentioned how important 
Vancouver's forecheck was in helping them defend well against the Blackhawks. The problem then too is when you're constantly struggling to transition, when you do eventually get the puck past the red line, you've got no gas to actually chase it down, apply pressure and make it hard for the other team to break the puck out. So So they just come at you wave after wave after wave. So yes, we can talk about structure. We can talk about defense's own gaps. We can talk about positioning, communication, how guys don't pick pick up um, their assignments uh, well enough when there are switches in the offensive zone. But for me, I just don't know how you solve this overarching issue of you don't have many players on this roster that when there's players right on top of you, whether it's along the boards behind the net if you're a defenseman or even in the even in the middle in the in the center pocket as a, as a centerman that can sort of ward off that pressure and make a controlled make a controlled play um i, I among the forwards i only see Pedersen who who does that consistently in terms of he's a guy that can sort of recycle the play um, miller when he's on the wing shows moments where he can do that successfully uh and then on the back end it's only hughes well, uh, one more game to go before they get into an extended break here with the All-Star game. We'll talk about what Coach Talkin should be starting with on the Canucks final game on Friday when we come back. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. So, Harm, the Canucks are off today on Thursday. They play on Friday against Columbus. It's their final game before the All-Star break when they definitely have to take a league-mandated break. We're assuming the Canucks were actually in the building, right? I I can imagine that, yeah, after back-to-backs, you want to give them some time off physically, but... This team still got a ton to learn. So I, I'm guessing that there were some meetings or or something to be had today, even though there was no media availability. Um, with one game coming up, and we've seen some interesting trends here, because I want to ask you, where do you begin? Like, if there was one thing after two games and you've seen this, what you'd want to impart to these players to try to bring into their final game, what would it be? But I, I it's probably more important that we get into a couple of trends. Uh, JT Miller. Ice time down, about six and a half, 16 and a half minutes. And we saw Bo Horvat with heavy ice time against Chicago. Everyone else's time, as far as the forward group, was down a little bit. But this is a season low for JT Miller. None of them looked good yesterday. Uh, you, you know me, I, I got no problem being critical of JT Miller, but none of them looked good yesterday, except Pedersen had his moments. What do we What do we make of that? Do we see that as a sign of things to come? Yeah, I, again, right off the bat, agree with you, Farhan, where that's just a game where nobody looked good. It wasn't Miller in particular played poorly. I mean, I can't even, I mean, really remember too many plays where he was way worse than his teammates or anything like that. So I don't think it was a punishment or anything like that. But still, it was interesting. We heard talk it 
when he was introduced to the media say that one of one of the ways that he wants JT wants to work with JT is to maybe cut his minutes down uh, and create an environment where he isn't pacing himself as much, where he can go more all out on a shift shift basis, knowing that he isn't necessarily going to have to play 22, 23, 24 minutes on uh, on a given night. It was interesting, ninth and five on five ice time. And that was, you know, only 11 seconds more than uh, more than Curtis Lazar. Even even in the Chicago game, it's not as if he played an exorbitant number of, uh, of minutes where um, and I think that suited him. I actually thought against Chicago, that was one of the better games that I've seen from JT Miller. We obviously saw the great play off the rush to set up the uh, Sheldon Drys goal, but also from a puck management perspective, I didn't see too many situations where he was trying to thread the needle and, and, and try and play hero hockey, trying to make the home run play all by himself. There were actually a couple moments where he was really engaged in forcing turnovers on the on the power play. I know the power plays stunk recently, but he stripped stripped uh, Seth Jones and uh, and created a, a chance that way against uh, the Hawks. There was a back check, uh, another one later in the game against Chicago that I thought, okay, like this is great. This is good to see him get on his horse, really hustle back in a scenario where he went sort of you know above and beyond. I think to track that play back, win possession. It wasn't the most dynamic performance offensively per se, but I thought he was controlled. I thought he was poised. I thought he was trending in the in the right direction. It's I'm more curious to see how how is Miller going to react to all right if this is the situation, right? His sweet spot ends up being let's say 17 to 19 minutes on a given night, which isn't it, it's a significant sort of reduction in minutes, but it's not huge. How is JT going to respond in the big picture if the team continues struggling? Like, is he going to continue being bought in, or is he the sort of player who I know for a fact JT Miller wants to be on the ice as much as possible? He loves the idea of trying to make an impact on the game, trying to lead his team. That's how most top players are. Wired, and sometimes it can be hard for player for players in that sort of situation to accept that less is sometimes more. Now, when you're winning, it's a lot easier. But if these losses mount up, I'm curious: are will we continue to see this more engaged version of Miller in this smaller ice time, or will it get to the point where he'll become frustrated, where we'll see the bad body language again? I hope not, because through two games, I actually think this is a better strategy than playing him 22, 23 minutes a night and um, and running him uh, to the ground to the point where he's having to pace himself and he's picking his spots for when he wants to back check and, and when he wants to, wants to just chill. Yeah, philosophically, you're right, but they're paying him $8 million a year. When Rick Tocco was in Pittsburgh and you had Crosby and Malkin, they were playing heavy, heavy minutes. Now, I get that JT Miller is not Sidney Crosby or Gino Malkin. However, on this team, he is. On this team, he's paid to have that level of impact. He should be playing more. He should expect to play more. He's never going to get near 99 points again if he's playing under 20 minutes a night. So I, I don't know how you buy in. And as an organization, I don't know how you can. Like To whom much is given, much is expected. And he needs to be playing more at a high level. And that should be a non-negotiable. And I, when I say non-negotiable, I don't mean from management to Rick Tockett. But I, and philosophically, I again, I understand. but. You know, Bo Horvat played almost 24 minutes the other night. I, I I disagree. Pedersen's always played before this season. He's always been 
averaged around the 18, 18 and a half minute mark. Go through Pedersen's year over year, season by season average ice time. That's where Pedersen's been his uh, his entire Canucks career. Now, I want Pedersen closer to uh, 20 minutes, for example, and he's gotten there this season, but he's had to he's had to sort of deal with that uh, for a really long time, and he's never pouted. It's never affected his ability to be the best player on the on this team. Yeah, you're right. It's a good example, but I I don't think JT Miller's going to be able to function at that. I think it takes him half the game just to get into the game, right? Like just where he's fully dialed in and fully engaged. I and again, 24 minutes isn't the answer, but I think he needs to be closer to 20. I don't know that 16 or 17 is going to be a long term solution for JT Miller. And like I said, I mean he he expects to get points. He wants to get points. He wants to impact the game. And I, I think the top end of your lineup. Uh, look, there might come a point in time where this team can actually flesh out its bottom six and and give you legitimate minutes there. That hasn't happened yet. So they've tried to spread out the roster a bit and try to go back to three legitimate lines with three legitimate centers and play in pairs with a you know bit of a rotation as the third winger or the third forward on any given line. What do you make of that? Because it looked good against Chicago. You know, we saw we saw Sheldon Drys with a nice goal. We saw Dakota Joshua get elevated a bit in the third period because of the Willockwood injury. And, you know, and just in terms of how ice time got rotated, and all of a sudden he found himself playing with better players and scored a goal. Um, everybody looked a little more engaged. They went through that process again last night and it looked completely different. So what do you make of the other players that are getting opportunities under Talkit? Yeah, right off the bat, I think, Super impressed with the way Joshua played against Chicago. Now, he wasn't one of the players that got a ton of opportunity in that game, but he's got underrated playmaking touch. I I, I really feel that we saw that on multiple occasions against uh, Chicago, even, even in the Seattle game. Obviously got the opportunity further up the lineup, but again, the entire team's infrastructure was just completely off. Tough spot for him to kind of get that showcase opportunity. So for me... I don't view a lot of players on this roster. Like when you talk about Dries and Studnika, Joshua, DiGiuseppe, obviously draw, drawing in because of, of uh, Lockwood status. I don't view any of these guys necessarily as if I put them in a bigger role, they're all of a sudden going to gonna pop. But if there's one guy out of that group who I'd bet on in, bet on to, to have the highest odds, it, would, it probably would be Joshua, especially because he also adds physicality. He can stick up for teammates and fight. Whereas with Stadnika, it's going to be interesting because, yeah, he has energy, he plays with decent pace, but sometimes I'm kind of left wondering, on a good team, what it what is his identity? What is his role? Because I don't think he's quite talented enough to play in a top-nine offensive role, but I also don't think that he has the defensive chops where he's playing PK and driving strong defensive results nor is he big enough to really be uh, 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 an energy, big hitting sort of uh, presence. So I'm kind of left wondering what his role is. Now, he's obviously still 23. He's got room to grow and develop, so I'm definitely not uh, counting him out. But I didn't think that was a great showing for him on um, in the Chicago game. That line still clicked, right? Horvat and Besser, I thought, were, were going pretty well. But I don't think Studnika was really driving that. There was a two-on-one where... The defender was just draped all where it was Stadnik and Horvat. Stadnik had the puck coming down the left flank. And the defender basically was saying, I've got Bo Horvat here. I'm just going to stick to him. 
and he basically <laughs> left the entire lane wide open for Studnika to cut in. Yeah, I know and the player you're still about. Try, and Studnika still tried to to pass across, and I get it, right? You're you're trying to feed the hottest goal scorer on the team, but I wasn't very impressed uh, with him. And in terms of the overall identity of trying to spread things out and 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 sort of play with three lines as opposed to loading things up with two, I actually don't even think it's that. Um, you know, that's absolutely a, a big part of it. But the bigger point almost is you've got to be able to see what JT Miller can do at center in a new environment under a new head coach with a new message, with perhaps new accountability. That's the biggest question mark that we're going to be looking to answer over these next, um, over the second half, or not even the second half, because we're already well into the second half over the last third of the season is can Miller stick at center, especially if you're in an, in an environment where perhaps Horvat moves on with the money that he's paid, management's original plan was for Miller to play center. That's the biggest question mark that we're going to see. And again, that's why I, I think that you want him in the 17 to 19 minute range. I think that's where he excels best. And I don't think it's too hard to cut those minutes. Just don't play him on the penalty kill as much. He's not good there anyway. No, you know, and, and the other thing too is you're right. Like, when I talk about Miller playing minutes, I'm thinking about him playing minutes as a winger. Uh, as a center, probably not the best for him to be playing over 20 minutes a night, at least from what we've seen of him at center to this point. He made some interesting comments earlier in the week. He said, uh, I know the Coos and, and IMAC were around him quite a bit and, you know, talking about a, accountability and back checking and, and all of those kinds of things. And he, and he said that, you know, he, he admits, he's always admitted he's an emotional player. He's never run from that, but you know, he's trying to say that when, when I get into those moments where, and, and he views them as outliers and we seem to view them all as, as a regular occurrence, but he was saying to the effect of, you know, it's not me saying I don't care. And that's why I'm skating this way. But he says, sometimes it's almost like I black out. I'm so upset and I'm so angry. And, and, you know, in that moment, he's not necessarily aware enough to realize what's happening because his emotions have so got the best of him. So I'm curious to see what, what uh, Rick Tockett can do because, um, the top players on the teams he's played on before swear by him, right? And he's going to need to build that relationship with JT Miller. He's going to need to do it. Um, interesting that Bruce Boudreaux talked about one of the best texts he received. One of the, you know, the kindest messages he received was from JT Miller. And we weren't sure the level of buy-in Boudreaux was getting from Miller, but I'm curious to see how that relationship forms between him and Rick Tockett, because he talks about relationships on a, on a, regular basis and you're right that first practice the other guys were doing the teaching and he was doing the talking so we'll see where that goes uh one more game again against columbus at home um before we go anything else you wanted to get into yeah just one last thing i think um the biggest difference especially it was prevalent against chicago and the canucks had last uh change well, the matchup game yeah yeah matchups it i mean it's interesting to see i, I mean it's not too surprising because he's good pals with travis green when Green coached the Canucks, he was probably the number one or number two most extreme head coach in terms of matching, in terms of deliberately matching his players up. The, re the way you could tell that was whenever I would look at matchup data for which players around the league are spending the highest percentage of their time against elite competition or which players are the most sheltered or spending the highest percentage of their time against bottom six competition, you'd always find Canucks players on both ends of the extremes. Horvat, for example, would be among the top five, top 10 players in how often he'd play against elite competition. 
then you'd see Adam, uh, someone like Adam Gaudet, for example, among the mo- the five or ten most sheltered players in the league. So you could see just how stratified it was. The Canucks got away from that with uh, with Boudreaux, where for him he's he's just not too worried about those minute details. With Tockett, not surprising because of course he's he's buddies with Green and and they obviously share some philosophies. Very deliberate again with a matchup game. I also found it interesting because on Sunday when he was introduced, I asked him about the evolution of Pedersen's two-way game. How, whether, you know, does he view Pedersen as the sort of player that he wants playing best on best? Tockett's response was that he'd prefer actually to manufacture opportunities for him to play and feast on the softest matchups, which we saw against the Hawks. He mainly played against bottom six competition. It worked, right? That uh, that line scored two goals. They were the difference. But in the big picture, the question that I run into is, can you give Pedersen enough minutes under a hard match system where, mo- where from in Talkett's mind, he mostly wants him out there against the uh, other team's third and fourth lines, especially because when we saw Green implement that philosophy, again, Pedersen never averaged a- above uh, 18 and a half minutes per game. When he's your best player, he needs to be around 20 minutes, uh, in my opinion. So I'm going to be interested to see how that uh, dynamic develops because I know Pedersen wants that responsibility of playing best on best. He wants playing wants to be playing more minutes. He's probably not going to PK as much under Talkett either, which is uh, which is interesting. I'm going to be curious to see how that uh, dynamic works, how that relationship evolves, and whether Talkett's going to have to tweak that philosophy a little bit moving forward just to get his best player more uh, more minutes. Because again, against Seattle, it was different. They didn't dictate matchups and talk. It was just like play, right? I, I think Pedersen was above 20 minutes. But when they're at home, when they do have the matchups, going to be really interesting to see uh, how that uh, matchup game works. Yeah, you know, I'm with you. And this is time. Pedersen is ready. When Travis Green went through this exercise, I don't know that Pedersen was ready for those matchups. And maybe he would be better served now having gone through that then. But today, A, he is more than ready. He is physically ready. There's a bit of bite to his game when he needs it. I think he can threaten and force opposing centers and top lines to wind up spending a lot of time in their end the way he's playing right now. I mean, that you know, is that going to work against McDavid? McDavid's McDavid. But you still will force him to defend from time to time. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like he's yeah. going to dominate that player, but he can make that player work harder. I absolutely think that Pedersen and the Canucks would be best served by letting him get into a best on best situation. We don't agree a lot. We're agreeing on this one. Yeah. Also, it's almost like, it I'm, is- it's almost like I'm Drancer without the <laughs> maniacal laugh. We actually, because usually if it was you and Drancer, you'd agree. I'll show this is, this is one of the rare moments where we agree. I know. Well, also with, um, with that dynamic right now, does that change when Horv- if and when Horvath's traded? Because then all of a sudden, who are you going to feed to those uh, feed those matchup minutes to? Right? Because if the Canucks had this, you know, hypothetical third line shutdown center who could actually defend really well, then I'm sure we'd all be saying, then who cares? Play Pedersen against whoever. If you want to play him against weaker competition, fine. But it may it may also just be out of sheer necessity if Horvath ends up being moved. Because I don't know if you necessarily want Miller in that sort of responsibility. And the other thing that you brought up with Pedersen that I um, that I also kind of wanted to touch on was: Have you noticed how much more physical he's been lately? It feels like oh yeah, he's even starting to initiate contact. Yeah, he laid Pedersen or he Very laid uh, he's out in one of the drills. That was that was kind of funny. But uh, 
he looks way stronger on his feet. He's not getting knocked over easily. And now he's legitimately going out there looking to throw big checks. I mean, even in like that he's Chicago had a game, there was a couple big ones. A couple big ones, even in the Edmonton one. There's been I'm trying to remember, was it the Colorado game where he where he tried to line someone up and just missed? But there was one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, I saw Pedersen trying to line someone up for a hit. When have I ever seen that before? I know. Hey, well, it's look, it's good to see. To be honest, even with Bo Horvat here, who's not an elite shutdown center. And and you know what I think yep. of Bo Horvat, right? And so I'm not trying to yep. I'm not trying to throw stones there, but he's not an elite even with him in the lineup. Pedersen should be your number one matchup guy. And he'll still yep. produce. So for me, I, I think they absolutely need to go in that direction. And yeah, and if they move on from Horvat, they have absolutely no choice. Because you like Miller's not a great center. Even a, even in sheltered minutes, he's not a great center. You can't put him against top players. And you know, maybe someone will say, Well, no, that's the motivation he needs. Forget it. We know who he is. Anyway. Fun show as always, my friend. Finally, we agree on something. It took us, I don't know, three, four months before we finally got there. I, th- uh, I feel like we've agreed on stuff before. We have a few times here there. I, I asked my son, hey, what's, what, what should I say to harm to make him agree? And he tells me. So, uh, <laughs> hey, uh, listen, lots of podcasting options. Barry Trotz, who many people were hoping would be the Canucks head coach. Instead, he joins Greg Custance and Sean Gentili on the Athletic Hockey Show on Tuesday. Also, you've got Mike Murphy from the NHL Situation Room joining the roundtable with Pizzo Granger and Russo Wednesday on the Athletic Hockey Show. Uh, we're going to try to get Gabby on. Bruce Boudreaux, he's going to come on with us at some point, hopefully next week, if not the week after. And he's going to be on some of our other podcast platforms on the Athletic NHL. You can subscribe to the Athletic NHL's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at the Athletic Hockey Show. And a reminder, you can get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 a month for the first 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. We will be back next week.